Well, good morning. Well, that was good. Nice. You guys are awake and you're ready to go. You're not like your engine this morning that was going to get started. You're all ready to roll. Uh, I apologize if you talk to me after the service. I, I may smell like static guard. Uh, I am sprayed literally from head to toe right now, so we don't have a bunch of cracking and popping from my mic because of static. Um, and I smell really good. I don't mind saying. Nice. All right, anyways, we'll turn to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be in, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 4 today. We started there last week. I'm also trying to do this when I'm, rather than dragging my feet. Kim's like, you drag your feet when you walk. So I'm going to make sure I don't drag my feet. Um, well, one of the great things, uh, you who spend time reading the Bible and studying the Bible, you know that uh, you could read a passage of Scripture um, and maybe even study it out and maybe even preach it or teach it and come to find out that you didn't necessarily know everything you thought you knew about that passage. And so I need to start out this morning with an apology. Uh, last week I was wrong. I know, right? It's so hard to believe that I would be wrong. Um, so last week we were talking about the temptation of Jesus. Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and it was 40 days. And so I, I had mentioned, because it was 13 going into 14, that uh, most likely the wilderness, which is both sides of the Jordan River, Jesus was probably moving around, because he was let out and led around by the Holy Spirit, and that he was probably, because verse 14 says he was going to go to Galilee, that he was probably working his way north, the Holy Spirit was moving him north during his temptation. And that could have very well be the case, right? There's debates. Was he at the southern end of the Jordan? Was he at the northern end of the Jordan? The point is, he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Um, and where I was not necessarily right is that between verse 13 and verse 14, uh, a year, maybe more, has elapsed. Again, when we read the Bible, we have a tendency to just kind of read it, and it's like boom, 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 you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. No, there's days and months, and in this case, a year or more has happened. They call it the year of obscurity. So if you say that word, you have to have a little bit of an English accent. There's certain theological words and stuff that you need to have an English accent. You know, deity, right? You don't just say deity. You say deity. You don't say obscurity. You go obscurity. Yeah. Anyways, that, again, I don't know about you, but if you want to impress people, that's what you do. Anyways, they also call it the early Judean ministry. What's interesting is the Gospel of John, John 1.19 through 4.44, he's the only Gospel that tells us what happened during between 13 and 14. In our Bibles, 13 and 14 is only about that much of a space, uh, but there's actually a year or so. And so it's kind of interesting. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't tell us that. John, he gives us a little information that kind of feeds back into those to let us know what was happening during those times. So in, in John, he meets some of his disciples. Um, and in Luke 5, we'll find out next week, some of those disciples begin to follow him full time. So they began kind of following him, and now they're going to follow him full time. So it's kind of an interesting thing, but we know that we would like for the Bible to tell us more than what it does tell us. Uh, but the Bible tells us everything we need to know. We don't, it may not tell us everything we want to know. But it tells us everything we need to know in order to know who God is, who Jesus is, what salvation is all about, and how do we live our lives. And so for today, we know that Jesus is going to Galilee. All right, chapter uh, 4, verse 14. 
And we hear this over and over as we read through Luke and also Matthew, Mark, and John, that people are amazed at Jesus. His reputation always goes before him. And then people are amazed with the miracles that he's doing and how unbelievable the things are that he's doing. But it's not just the miracles. They're also, it says, amazed at his teaching. His teaching is, is powerful. It's authoritative. It's, it's impactful. They're, they're amazed by it. They've never heard anybody teach with such power in all their lives. Because here's what's happening. In the first century, the Pharisees and the rabbis, they're, they're teaching. They teach every week. But what they're doing is they're not focusing on the Old Testament, which is the Bible they had at the time. They're fo- focusing more on what they thought that the Old Testament was talking about. The traditions that they added to what God gave them in the Old Testament. And so they would talk more about those things. They wouldn't talk about the Bible. Or, or they would talk about what previous Pharisees and rabbis had said about what the Bible had said or not. And so it was more of this just talking about what they thought about what other people thought about what the Bible may or may not have taught. Nobody wants to hear that, right? But Jesus shows up. He's teaching the Word of God. It, it's very similar to what happens in our churches today. I've talked to numerous people who go to what we'd call mainline denominational churches. And in a lot of those churches, not all of them, but a lot of those churches are kind of focused on you know, the church calendar, uh, their liturgy. And so every Sunday, there's, if you go the first Sunday of January to the, one of those churches, every first Sunday of January is the exact same passage that they're going to look at. And they do it year after year after year after year after year. They never get into any other really parts of the Bible. They'll talk more about what other pastors or priests or popes or philosophers have said about what they thought maybe was going on in Scripture. But then they come to churches like ours where we spend time reading from the Bible and where we spend time breaking down Scripture and we start seeing what God may want for us and apply it. And they're like, wow, that was, that was so good. I've been learning so much. I've heard that numerous times. It's not me. It's not the other pastors who do this. It's, it's God using his word because his word is powerful. And so when they heard it back then, it was powerful. When people hear it today, it's powerful. So as Jesus makes his way to Galilee and around Galilee, he ends up in his hometown, which is awesome, right? It's Nazareth. It's, it's a, a podunk town. Nobody really cares about, nobody really knows about. The Old Testament never even talks about Nazareth. It is really not anything that special. Only 400 people live there. It's in the hills. You know, kind of going to West Virginia. Uh, no, it's, it's in the hills. It's, i got friends who live there, so I better be careful. But, yeah, it's not really thought of well by the rest of Israel. But Jesus, their famous son, has come home. Wouldn't it be awesome? You know, like if, if Northwood had somebody famous, you know, and they came home, you know, you have parades, you, you name a street after them, right? Jesus Avenue. You'd actually give them the key to the city. Uh, you, you might even declare a certain day to be Jesus Christ Day. Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I mean you, you'd have like, it'd be awesome, Right? Well, let's see. Let's see how awesome it was. So he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. So again, these are his, his family, his extended family, his childhood friends who he used to hang around with. Now they're adults, 20s, 30s, 40s, just like he is. And neighbor, neighbors and the old ladies who used to pinch his cheeks and you know, all that kind of stuff. This is, these are the people that he's, he's seeing. Everybody knows everybody in a town of 400. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, 700 years written, 700 years previous. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And so now he goes back to Isaiah, that's why it's capitalized. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, which is actually a scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were just like staring at him. This is like, and again, he's, he's given us what he read, and there might have been more that he said during that time. Maybe he had put parentheses and colors, you know, in there. I don't know, maybe he operates that way. But whatever the case, they're, they're just amazed, and they're just staring at him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the guy. I'm the one he's talking about. He wrote it 70 years ago, but I'm him. And all were speaking well of him and wondering, I look how Luke says this, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. You know, it's, it's very poetic. But you, you get the picture, right? Everybody's kind of like sitting here, and they're, they're probably sitting on the floor and maybe in more of a round, and, and he's starting to teach, and he's talking about these things, and they're all like, wow, hear what he's saying. He's, he's reading from Isaiah. Remember, he's a Messiah. He's saying he's a Messiah. And so people are having little pockets of conversation, but it's like this, this din, right? This, there's just this constant conversation happening in a crowd because, or in a group because of what he's reading. And then they're saying this, is this not Joseph? Joseph's son? Okay, go to the next one. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote, to, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, Heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, do for us, for your people, your homies. Oh, wow. Like that. Liv, where were you? That was too early. I did it later on. The others, yeah. I told Liv, you got to laugh at my jokes. That fell flat. Townies. Hometowners. <sighs> Do for us what you did for everybody else. I'll just keep going. This is not going over well at all. All right. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, there was a drought. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was not sent, or was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, which is north of Israel, to a woman who was a widow. And then there was many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. These are two really famous Old Testament prophets. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian, he probably, it's Syrian military commander of Israel's enemy. That's how it should have been put out there, I suppose. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. I'll explain why that is. And they got up, they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw Jesus down the cliff. I mean, these people are ticked. 
But passing through the midst, he went his way. No heroes welcome. No parade. No key to the city. No Jesus Christ Boulevard. No day for Jesus. No, these guys ended up wanting to kill him. His own family, his own childhood friends, the old ladies. They wanted to take him by the cheeks and throw him off a cliff. What's going on? Well, so again, he's reading a 700-year-old prophecy. And Israel's excited because this, this prophecy is about one who God was going to send to Israel who was going to do some incredible things for them. He was going to preach the gospel, this good news of salvation to the poor. Well, they were poor. Nobody liked the people in Nazareth. These people were thinking, man, this is going to be great. We're going to be known. He was going to proclaim release to the captives. The Roman army had taken Israel, Israeli people and put them in the prison. Those people were going to be released. He was going to give sight to the blind he was going to free those who were oppressed. They were going to be free as a nation. No longer oppressed by Rome or Syria or any other. And he was going to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This was exciting. It was, a, it was great to hear this reminder that God was going to do this one day. What a great thing to think about. That Man, there's going to be a day where we are no longer under the boot of Rome. Or sandal of Rome. Didn't have boots back then. That he's going to come and he's going to free Israel. Israel would be great again. They would, they would be like David's time. They would be powerful. And, and all the other nations would be under their authority. This was going to be a great thing. It was going to be wealth for everybody. How awesome is that? And then it, it got even better because Jesus said, the time is now. It's me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's going to bring this about. One of their own. One from this little town of Nazareth was going to be, was going to make Israel great. But there is the rub. There's where things switched that went from, oh, this is awesome, to, wait, you're Joseph's son. See, I don't think what's happening here is what typically happens as you read through the Gospels. When you, when you typically go through the Gospels, the, the problem people were having was is they thought Jesus came to bring uh, national freedom, that, that Israel would be freed one of these days. And it was kind of a nationalistic thing. And it was an exciting thing. And Israel would be great again. And, and they were having trouble understanding what Jesus was really saying was that Yes, there's going to be a kingdom of God. There's going to be some physical um, demonstration of this down in the future, which, of course, is still future to us. But before that can happen, a spiritual transaction, transformation has to take place. That, that there has to be a movement spiritually from being part of this world, this world's kingdom, to being part of God's kingdom, to be in God's family, to have a, a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ is the king of our lives, the ruler of our lives, the one who tells us what to do and when to do it and provides everything we need like a king does for his kingdom. 
See, Jesus was coming to preach the gospel, the good news of salvation to the poor, those who are spiritually poor, which is everybody. We're all spiritually poor. We've all sinned. We're, we're all falling short of God's glory. And so he's coming to preach and say, listen, you who are spiritually poor, you who recognize the fact that you have sinned and you're separated from God, I'm coming to preach the good news of salvation. I'm going to pay your debt. And those who were, uh, would be released is those who are captive to sin, which is everybody. Those who are blind, he's talking about spiritually blind. He's going to get spiritual sight to those who would receive it. He's going to set free those who are oppressed, those who have been oppressed by sin. It's a favorable year of the Lord. In other words, a time has come where God has brought and given grace to us, a gift of salvation. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is straight up jealousy. I think this is them going, wait a second, this is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter's son. In fact, if you go read Matthew and Mark, it tells us that the people were offended by Jesus, by Jesus saying that he was the Messiah. Well, that's kind of what happened here. They go on to, to list, here's his brother's. And they list out his brother's names. And it's, and his sisters are amongst us too. And, and his mother Mary is here. And that carpenter. They don't, in Matthew and Mark, they, they, get, they get us to understand that this is um, a bad situation because they won't even use Joseph's name. What are they saying? What are the people saying? They're saying that this kid, this guy who's grown up, Jesus, this is the... The offspring, this is the one who was conceived before Mary and that carpenter guy were married. This kid was conceived in sin. And he thinks he's going to be the Messiah? He, he thinks God would use him? Come on. You, your parents weren't even married when you were born. God can't use you. And Mark even says that Jesus was incredibly disturbed by their unbelief. Mark does tell us that he, he, he um, healed a few people who had fevers, but only a few. See, Jesus knows what they're saying, and more importantly, he knows what they're thinking. He knows where their hearts are at. He knows they're offended at him or by him. He knows they don't believe that he's certainly the Messiah. They don't believe that. He's just Joseph's son. He's not anointed by God. He's not God himself. But it's interesting, they still want him, because he knows their heart, they still want him to, to do these miracles. And yeah, we don't, really, we don't really believe, but man, we'll take the miracles. We'll, we'll do what you want to do amongst us, but we don't really believe. And that's why he says, he gives this figure of speech, physician, heal yourself. And what he's saying here is, you guys want me to do stuff for you, my people, but, you know, and not necessarily do it for everybody. You want me to keep doing this for you. And so he says, I'm not going to do that. And he uses a couple of well-known prophets in order to bring this about. He uses Elijah. And Elijah, very well-known in Israel, he, he met the needs of a non-Jewish widow during a time of drought when God didn't send him to the widows in Israel. This lady lived in Sidon. It was north of, um, of Israel. Even worse, that she was, Sidon was the hometown of Queen Jezebel, 
the, the most wicked queen of Israel. So Ahab he marries her, brings her to Israel, and she is a wicked woman. You can read all about her in the Old Testament. So it makes it even worse that you would actually honor and meet the needs of a, a widow from this lady's hometown. Then he says, Elijah, he, he heals leprosy of this Naaman, this military leader from Syria, an enemy of Israel, when there's a bunch of people with leprosy in Israel that he wasn't healing. And what Jesus was saying here is, listen, those people, they got healed because of their faith, their faith in God. You guys have no faith in God. You have no faith in me. And so I'm going to go to those who have faith and continue to work amongst those who have faith. Well, that was all they needed to hear. And so they stand up as one and they start driving him to this cliff. That word is the same word that Luke uses for when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. And so they are up and they are moving him and they are making sure he knows they don't want him in the synagogue anymore and he is going to the edge of the cliff and they want to throw him off the cliff. They were not happy with this guy. So Jesus, he gets to the edge and he's like, nah, this is not going to happen. Jesus controls what happens to him. It wasn't his time to be killed. He would let that happen in a few years from now. And so he just took his first step and kept on walking. The people parted. And he kept on walking. And he kept on going. The 20-some miles northeast to, to Capernaum. Back to where people had demonstrated faith in who he was. Back to people who were going to be willingly receiving the healing that he was offering. And there's a lot of things that take place. I'm going to read a couple things. I'm going to summarize a couple things. But there's a, a bunch of things that take place. And the first one happens in the synagogue. Again, that's what he does. Every time he gets to a city, he goes into the synagogue. And so then this happens. It says, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So his townies, his hometown people, they didn't believe he was God, but the demons knew for sure that he was God, that he was from God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them, and they all started talking again, murmuring again. They began talking with each other, saying, What is this message? For the authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. It just ripple uh, of, of this information going out, and people saying and telling people what he was doing, and how people were being healed, and demons were coming out of people. And I just want to make one point and then move on about these, these demons. I mean, it had to be a terrifying experience. I mean, imagine if someone in this room was demon-possessed. I'm just checking. I'm just looking in your eyes, just making sure. I mean, that would be freaky. But I want to make one point here, and that's this. Unlike the people in his hometown who didn't believe the demons believed 
but didn't, right? So they knew all about Jesus. They had perfect and accurate theology. They knew everything about who Jesus was. They knew that he was their creator. They knew that they rebelled against him. They knew, they knew everything about him. But it didn't make them right with him. They were his enemies. He was conquering them. He was tossing them out of people. Well, after the teaching and healing the demon-possessed, man, he, he heads over to Peter's mother-in-law's. And she has a fever, and so he say, hey, could you heal her? And so, of course, he, he heals her. She gets up and thanks him the best way possible, makes a meal. It's awesome. But the people are always, I heard that, amen. The people are always aware of where Jesus is. They're always bringing people. That's what Luke tells us. They're bringing sick people to him, one after another, after another, after another. And he keeps healing them. And there's people coming who are demon-possessed, and he keeps on rebuking the demons, and demons are coming out of people. And those demons are saying, to, as they're coming out, you're the Son of God. And finally, it says that Jesus was able, it came to the end of the day, Jesus was able to get a little break and be able to go to sleep. But then he wakes up the next morning, and this takes place. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. Now, he did that to spend time with God. Why would Jesus, who is God, have to go spend time with God? Right? I mean, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're one. They're one in mission. They're, they're, they, he doesn't have to learn anything. He's one. Why would he even do that? Well, as I gave you a hint, he's our example. He did this on a regular day, day to day. He would look, find a secluded place, try to get away from people. People didn't always give him that time, but... And so we need to do the same. Anyways, the crowds were searching for him, and they came to him, and they tried to keep him from going away from them. So is the people in Nazareth are trying to get rid of him, and these people are trying to keep him. They wanted him to keep on healing people. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching. The synagogues of Judea actually kind of dipped down into northern Judea and stayed in Galilee for a while, but dipped down and did a little work down there. So Jesus says, hey, listen, I've got to leave. I've got to move on. I've got, my mission is not accomplished yet. I'm, I'm here to bring the kingdom of God to this world, to these cities, to these people. And again, he's not talking about, though there will be a fulfillment of that physically at some point in our future, right here, right now, he's making sure that individuals are right with God, that they are part of God's kingdom, that they are part of God's family. And so he, the miracles are proof that he's God. The Old Testament said, hey, when a Messiah comes, certain things are going to happen that only God can do. And Jesus is doing those things, saying, hey, I am God. And he came to bring the kingdom first to people's hearts, to their lives. And so that people would understand, I'm spiritually poor. I have sin, and everybody starts out that way. We are spiritually poor. We are separated from God. We have sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to pay that debt for you. I'm going to die your eternal death for you. I'm going to take those consequences on me when he goes to the cross. 
those who are captive to sin, he's going to free them as they ask God to forgive them of their sin, and God forgives them. He's going to give them spiritual sight. They're going to understand spiritual things. He's going to free them from oppression. He's going to say, hey, the day of the Lord is here. This, this opportunity for God's grace, His gift of salvation is being given to you. But it's a spiritual thing where we say, God, forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus paid my debt on the cross. And He gives us His Holy Spirit. And when He gives us His Holy Spirit, it's as if Jesus is sitting on the throne of our lives. Where we don't do anything without Him telling us what to do. That He is going to be the authority. He's going to tell us what to do. He's going to tell us how to live. And then He's going to provide us what we need to do those things. Not to build our kingdom, but to build His kingdom. You know, as I studied through these verses, what stood out to me, and you can kind of tell from this, um, is that there's the different responses towards Jesus. The hometown people, the demons, the, the people of Capernaum. And so really the, the question for us is, what's our response? What's your response to Jesus? So for some of you this morning, you may be sitting here and you're angry at Jesus. You're angry because he's, not, he's doing for everybody else, but not for you. He said, hey, I, I, I promise to do this, this, and other. And, and it's not happening. It's not happening fast enough. And so you're angry with him. You're frustrated with him. You don't understand why he's not doing for you, his people. Well, for some of you, you're not his people yet. You've never came to that point where you have a relationship, that you seek him and ask him for forgiveness and so, for you, that's your first step. To ask God, forgive me of my sins. God, I know that I'm spiritually poor. I know that I deserve your judgment. Forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I'm trusting that. And when, he, when you do that, the Bible tells us that he will forgive you of your sin. He'll place God the Holy Spirit in your life. And now you'll learn about what he wants to do in and through you. And you'll have more clarification as to what's a need and what's a want. And, and what you need to accomplish what it is he's called you to. If you're a believer, that's right where we're at. Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we need to trust his way. We trust his way for eternity. We say that, I believe that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven one of these days. Well, that's a greater, more difficult thing for him to do. I mean, he's infinitely powerful, so nothing's difficult. But that's a greater trust on our end, right? Because we don't, we don't know. We don't, when we're laying there and we're about to breathe our last, we, don't, we just got his word. But we say, no, I believe that's going to happen. Well, man, if we can believe that, then we better believe that he can fix our marriages. We better believe he can fix our families. Or at least give us what we need to get through those, If you know, because not everybody wants to be fixed. Or he's going to heal us or maybe not heal us and he's going to give us what we need in order to get through the health issue or the finances that we have or the the job situation whatever it is that we're waiting for him to answer us on and we're frustrated angry with him secondly you, you might be demon possessed <laughs> not, not what i'm saying i to just chill out no but but like the demons you might know theology and doctrine and truth well. 
but you may not be living it. One, you may not even have a relationship with the Lord. You might have great theology about who Jesus is. You believe that he came. You believe he's God. He came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. You may believe all of that, but you've never come to know him. It's like Joe Biden is a president, so I use this illustration when I'm sharing the, um, the gospel with people from time to time, and whoever the president is, that's who I use, so this time it's President Biden, and I'm not going to make jokes. I'm just going to say he's the president. And so <clears throat> it's easy. I know some people say, well, I'm not going to. I can tell you a lot about the president. I've read up on him. I know about his childhood. I know about his college days. I know about his uh, senatorial days. I, I, know all, I, I know a lot about him. But if you went to talk to him, he would be like, uh, hey, do you, know pa- you know, do you know Pastor Harold? He'd be like, uh, no. I don't know who he is. Why? Because there's no relationship. And so all of us start with, we can know everything about God, but there's no, been no introduction. And a person goes, hey, God, do you know Harold? And there's no, been no introduction. He'll be like, no. He knows me because he knows everything, but he doesn't know me in a relational way. So it has to be an introduction. There has to be me coming to him. And wanting him to be my God. Wanting him to be your God. And so as an unbeliever, that's where that starts. You ask him to forgive your sins. You ask him to come into your, your life. Because accurate theology doesn't make you right with God. Only God can make you right with him by forgiving your sin. And for believers, then we need to take steps of faith to live out the tra- truth that you know. Each of us who are believers knows some truth from Scripture. Some of you know more than others. You study the Bible more, you've been in it longer, whatever the case, you know more truth than others, but we all know some truth, and so then we need to live that truth out and then continue to learn more and more and more and continue to live that out. And then the last one, and this is where I help all of us land, that we'd be like the people of Capernaum, that we wouldn't want Jesus to leave. But here's the good thing. Back then, Jesus was in a human body, so he was only in one place at one time. Today, because of what he's done on the cross, he accomplished his mission. Now we can have him with us every day. He will never leave us or forsake us, he said. How does that happen? Because God the Holy Spirit is in our lives. And so for unbelievers, to make sure you know that you have God in your life today, for the rest of your life, and take you into eternity. And that's you asking God to forgive you of your sin. And say, I believe Jesus paid my debt, my sin debt when he died on the cross. Please forgive me of my sin. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. That's just a conversation you can have with God, your heart to God's heart. For we who are believers, we need to be like Jesus. Oh, you jumped too fast, man. Didn't get a chance to give it to, you know, Well, now you know. Go ahead and go to the next one. Someone paid Greg to... No. For us, we need to do what Jesus did. And that is spend daily time with God in His Word. And I say that all the time, right? If you've been here for any length of time, you know. If you've been here for a month, you've heard me say this. If you've been here longer, you're like, oh boy. The grow class. We, We give you... It won't be three hours. It'll be more like two and a half, maybe. But you get breakfast. Your kids can go and play somewhere in the church or outside in the snow. No, we'll put them in the church. 
But you can come and find out how do you study the Bible, how do you read it effectively, how do you study it effectively, how do you memorize it, how do you meditate on it. Well, how do you spend time with God? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about giving. We're going to talk about fellowship. But we spend the majority of our time talking about God's Word and, and how do we know it. And I would just challenge you to sign up for that class. We've got several who are already signed up. So it won't be just you and me. Uh, there'll be you and me and another person. No, there's, there's several. So, but sign up for that. Be a part of that. If you've taken it before and it's been a while, sign up again. And uh, at least nothing else, get a good breakfast. Sound good? Everyone's like, yes, we're going to do this. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Let's go ahead and stand. Next week we're going to be into Luke 5, so make sure you're reading ahead. And I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to take a break from our busy lives and our maybe in some cases frustrating and difficult lives and just focus in on you and realize that you have it all under control, that you are God who's good. You work all things out for good. Not that all things are good, but you work things out for good. You use them for our growth and our um, strengthening, discipline, and Lord, I just pray for each of us um, that as we leave here that we would enter this week committed to spending time with you, committed to doing life the way you've called us to do it, to trust you in spite of what may, others may or may not do, that we would represent you well. We'll give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen.